0: In the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, a guy called Derek Redman uh, from the UK was considered a contender for the 400 metre sprint medal. But in this semi-final race, as he got about halfway, he suddenly heard a popping sound and felt a searing pain in the back of his right, right, right leg. His right hamstring had torn. And in agony, Derek suddenly stopped and fell to the ground, holding his leg. But as officials ran to help him, he he waved them off. Despite being in pain, he stood up and he began to hobble around the rest of the track. He was determined to finish his race. And in the stands, his dad had been watching. And his dad pushed his way past the security guards who were there to try and stop people getting on the track. And he ran to his son and said, look, son, you don't need to do this. Yes, I do, Derek replied. Well, if you're going to finish the race, his dad said, we'll finish it together. And so with his arm locked around his son, Jim helped him finish the race. As crowds in the stadium rose to their feet and applauded. A really memorable moment in Olympic history. Derek, he didn't win a medal. He didn't finish that race first. In fact, I think that was the end of his athletic career. But with the help of his dad, he did finish his race. Over the past year or so, we've been studying this letter to the Hebrews in the Bible. It was written to people who had started well. But now they were struggling to continue right to the finish line. They'd made a commitment to trust in and to follow Jesus. And then things had got really difficult. They'd suffered persecution for their faith. And now it was intensifying, it was getting Harder and harder. And as a result, they were thinking about giving up. They were thinking about going back to the religious system that they'd come from. Back to the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and the rituals that they'd grown up with. But the writer of this letter knew how disastrous that would be. He knew that if they gave up on Jesus... They would be giving up on the salvation that he alone had given. So all through this letter, he urged his readers to keep on going. To persevere in their faith in Jesus. To run this race right to the end. But he knew it wouldn't be easy. There would be further challenges ahead. And so as he brought this letter to an end, he pointed to four ways that they could get the help that they needed to have a better finish. So we're going to read that from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 25, to the end of the the book, and Daniel's going to come up, and he's going to read it for us. Thanks, Daniel. Hebrews chapter 13. Starting from verse 20. This is the word of God. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do as well, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Thank you very much, Daniel. Like many of the, the New Testament letters, The end of this letter includes some personal greetings. So look again at verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. In an age when communication was really much more difficult than it is now, the writer wanted to express his love and his connection with the believers in the church he was writing to. And he also wanted to pass on greetings from the believers in, from Italy. This is perhaps because, as many people think, this letter was actually written to Christians in Rome. And he was sending greetings from other Christians who used to be with him in Rome and are now left and he was passing on their best wishes. Now, that might just sound trivial and irrelevant to all of us. After all, we don't know those people. So why read greetings from two people we don't know? But this is a reminder of the community aspect of our faith. We live in such an individualistic world. And even though technology can connect us with people all over this world, in an instant, sometimes that just gets in the way of our connection with the people around us. You ever been to a restaurant or a cafe and looked over at another table and there's two people there, both with their phones out? Connecting with the world, but not the person across the table. You ever seen that situation? Gets in the way, doesn't it? So often. Maybe you're like me sometimes who is tempted to do that at the breakfast table. Sit down for breakfast together and you bring out your phone just to check the news, just to check it quickly. But you forget about the connection about the person who's beside you. But following Jesus is not an individualistic life. Yes, we need to have a personal faith in Jesus. Nobody else can decide to trust in Jesus for us. Nobody else can take the responsibility for us to grow in our relationship with and our understanding of God. As Paul told the, the Galatians, each one should carry his own load. Each of us have to take responsibility for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Nobody else can do that for you. But we're not supposed to follow Jesus on our own. We are it's a personal faith, but not an individualistic through Jesus, we've not just come into a relationship with God as our Father. We've actually come into a relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need each other. We cannot live out our life for Jesus as God has called us to on our own. Like Derek Redmond at the Olympics. We can't finish this race on our own. So if you remember in chapter 10 of this letter, we read, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as someone in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so we need to spend time with each other. That's what the, letter, the writer of this letter was committed to do, doing. Have a look at verse 23. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Timothy, it seemed, had been imprisoned for his faith. But now he's been released. And although he's been through this really difficult time because of his faith in Jesus, he's not about to give up on Jesus or on his brothers and sisters in Christ. The writer's plan was that if Timothy is released in time, they would both travel to visit these believers. The writer was confident that like that he wanted to himself, Timothy would want to meet them and encourage them and support them in their faith. That, after all, was the kind of man Timothy was. I don't know if you remember what Paul wrote about him uh, to the Philippian church. He said this, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Timothy was a guy who was always concerned about other people. He's always concerned about other believers. He always wanted to go and encourage them and help them and support them. And if we are going to finish well in our faith, then we also need to make a priority of spending time with fellow believers. We need to encourage each other to grow in our knowledge of God and our relationship with God. We need to spar one another on in our walk with Him. We cannot do this on our own. We need each other. We need God's people. Secondly, we need God's Word. Have a look at verse 22. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. If I have written on you only a short letter. I can't help but smile. A short letter? It's taken us about a year to get through this this letter. So we may have a different idea about what a short letter is. I don't know, maybe you write these love, uh, love letters to your beloved like this. I think my, you know, you get a card and you write from Andrew. There you go. That's kind of my style. So this is a long letter in my book. But I hope that we'll all agree that this is a word of exhortation. This is a word of encouragement. This letter was written to encourage us that we need to keep on trusting in Jesus, no matter what. I hope we're convinced that the writer has really managed to do that. I certainly am. I've learned so much as we've spent this time studying this letter. I hope you've you've learned at least a a, a little bit compared to what I've learned. It's just been amazing for me. But that's not the case just with this letter in the Bible. That's the case with the whole of God's Word. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy again. All Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebu- uh, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is, is God breathed. Not just part of it. Not just the bits that we like. Not just the bits that we understand. But all of it. We are so privileged to have the Bible. In this room, there are so many Bibles. Even if we all pulled out our phones, at least half of us, I'm sure, would have a Bible on it. This is God's gift to us, to encourage us, to build us up, to direct us and strengthen us as we live for Christ. Without the Bible, we'll never be able to finish well. So we need to be committed to continuing to to read it, and to study it, and to memorizing it, and to, to, to learning from it, and to living it out in our lives. But the problem is it's so difficult to do that. It's a constant battle. We live in such a distracted world, don't we? How many times do we sit down to read the Bible and our phone pings? So we just check on that notification and then suddenly half an hour has gone. How many times do we say, oh yeah, I'm going to read the Bible today, but then something nice comes on the TV or or Netflix or something like that and you just want to watch that and then I'll do that and and then I'll do that and then I'll read my Bible and, and then that's another day gone. We have greater access to the Bible than ever before in history. And so many of us read it so little. I remember hearing a story a number of years ago about a guy who was was martyred for his faith. And what he did wrong was he'd read the Bible. I think it was in England, if I remember rightly. I might be wrong in the details. But there was a Bible in church. And only the guy at the front, only the leader was supposed to read it. So chained to the pulpit, kind of thing. And he was caught because he wanted to read the Bible himself. And he was imprisoned and killed for his faith. And yet we've got the Bible. The house is full of Bibles. And yet so often we don't just read it. Statistics from the states, the United States, say that scripture engagement is at a historic low. They claim that 26 million people stopped reading the Bible over COVID. No idea why. In the UK, among those who are 20s and 30s, only 13% of them look at the Bible a few times a week. Only 9% claim that they read the Bible every day. Worldwide, it's estimated that all, among all those who call themselves Christians, only 30% of them will ever read through the whole of the Bible in their lifetime. 70% of Christians will never read every part of this, this, this Bible. And many people say that Christians, many Christians only engage with the Bible when it's read in church. And I know the challenge of this. I first read through the Bible eh, in a year, a year, a Bible in a year program when I was 12. Our our youth group did it as a challenge and I like a challenge. (laughs) Bit competitive in that way. But as I grew up I really struggled with it. My Bible reading was really hit and miss in my late teens and early twenties. But then, then in in kind of mid twenties or kind of the, 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 I don't know what, age it was, maybe 22, 23, I went to a service, uh, it was in Minehead in England, and I was really challenged about this. So I made a commitment to God about this. It wasn't a very big commitment. Uh, All I said was, okay God, I'm going to at least open the Bible and read a part of the Bible every day. That was all. Set the bar very, very low. I didn't say I was going to read all the Bible every year or a chapter a day. Just I'm going to open the Bible at least and read a part of it each day. I'm going to try and do my best to make sure there wasn't a day in which I didn't open the Bible. As I say, set the bar very low. But even that little commitment transformed my life. Even at that level, God's Word changed me. So what commitment are you willing to make today? If we want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus. If we want to stand strong in the face of all of the challenges that are coming. If we want to finish well. We need God's Word. We need God's people. We need God's Word. But they're not the ultimate source of what we need. They just help, they just connect us with that source. Because ultimately what we need is God's grace. Do you see how the the writer finished off his letter? Grace be with you all. Very similar to how, uh, how the Apostle Paul finished off a number of his letters. It seemed to be that was the tradition in, uh, among them. But it wasn't a throwaway phrase. It wasn't just something you say like, goodbye, and don't actually mean what, think what it means. It was a sincere blessing. It was based on the conviction that this is what the believers needed most of all. It was by grace, by God's unmerited and undeserved favour that they'd come into this relationship with God. They'd put their, their faith in Jesus and His finished work on the cross and they were saved by God's grace. A gift. Their sins were forgiven. They were declared righteous in God's sight. They were welcomed into God's family. Their lives were transformed. They were set apart to live for God. And it was by God's grace that they would continue to live for God. That they would experience his transforming power. That they would fulfill God's purpose and plan for their lives. And that they would finish well. It was all by God's grace. That's why the writer could pray for his readers. Verse 20, 21. May the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his well. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him. What an incredibly ambitious prayer. That despite all the challenges, <coughs> excuse me, and struggles that we face, we will have everything that we need to live our lives in keeping with His perfect will. That as a result, we will live a life that will please God isn't that incredible that sinners like us as messed up as broken as we are could ever live to please God but the writer could pray this with confidence because he knew it wasn't dependent on their resources it wasn't dependent on their character, it wasn't dependent on how good they were It was dependent on the grace of God. And the good news is, that grace is available. That's why this letter encouraged us to keep on going to God. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can go running to God confidently, knowing that He will welcome us. He will provide us the grace that we need. But more than the fact that God's grace is available, God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. Yes, we'll often feel weak and unable to keep on going. Lorna's fed up with me me telling her, I just can't do this anymore our strength, our resources will run out. But the incredible promise from God is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is sufficient. Finishing well is not about digging deep. And finding in ourselves the resolve and determination to never give up. That's not what it's about. Instead it's about humbling ourselves. And facing up to the reality of our own weakness. And our powerlessness. And in just complete dependence, running to God. For all the grace that we need. But finally, how can we receive that grace? What do we need to do? Where do we need to go to get the grace that we need? Well, the answer is that all the resources, all the strength, all the help, all the grace that we need comes through Jesus As we are thinking about on our weekend away with Oriel. The leaders of God's people were often pictured as shepherds. But often they fell short of what they were called to be. But here Jesus says he is the great, or the writer says that Jesus is that great shepherd of the sheep. He was completely different from those other leaders that were there who had been there as part of the, the nation of Israel. Ezekiel, he declared, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Those leaders, they ruled harshly and brutally. They looked after their own interests, not the interests of others. They benefited at the expense of others. They lived in luxury while others lived in poverty. But as the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus is completely different. He is the one who could declare, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest from your soul, for your souls. He is the one who did not come to be served, but to serve to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He is the one who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus could say of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's the one who willingly gave up himself for us. The one who suffered the punishment that we deserved. Who died our death. Who rose again so that we could experience his life. And today, as our great shepherd, he is the source of all that we need. This has been the focus of this letter the original readers of this letter, they were tempted to, to look elsewhere to try and get the grace that they needed for their lives. To, to Judaism, to tradition, to, to the laws, to an earthly sanctuary and a human priesthood, to special days and festivals, to rituals and sacrifices. But again and again, the writer has emphasized that compared to all of that, Jesus is better. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, a better relationship with God. So we've seen in this letter that he has brought us a better revelation. As God's final word to us. He is a better person, fully God and fully man. He is better than the angels as he sits at God's right hand. He is better than Moses and Joshua because he brings us into a better Sabbath rest. He's a better high priest in the order of Melchizedek and ministers in a better sanctuary, not an earthly sanctuary, but a heavenly one. He's offered a better sacrifice to do away with sin once and for all. And so he's a better champion who tasted death for everyone, but overcame the grave to free us from the fear of death forever. And so he offers to us a better salvation, making us holy and perfect in God's sight. And he's opened up for us a better way to God, right into the very, the, the most high the most holy place, the most intimate presence of God. And He's given us a better hope, firm and secure, as an anchor for our lives. And that's what this better covenant is all about. This covenant that we've brought, been brought into through His blood, that we've remembered as we've to- taken that cup that Jesus said. Take this and drink of it. Remember my covenant in my, in this new covenant in my blood. So, this is how we can keep on going. Right to the end. We don't need to go looking anywhere else, we don't need to give up no matter how difficult it gets, no matter what challenges we face, no matter what temptations we have to resist, we can keep on running right to the finish if we depend on the support and the encouragement of God's people, if we continue to live and to learn from God's Word, if we are equipped and empowered by God's grace, but most of all, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, God's one and only Son, He is worth trusting in. He is worth depending on. He is worth clinging to. Because He is.